which is why when you talk to the endowments and the large allocators, and we're in the middle of doing a series with some of the world's largest wealth funds and allocators, is they have typically a strategic asset allocation. They have a, you know, a framework and they have accepted deviations from that so that they don't wake up in a cold sweat one morning and decide to sell all of their equities and put it all into fixed income. Thank you so much for tuning in to Journey with Christian D. Evans Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Christian D. Evans. And guys, we have a very special guest on today. I'm very excited about having him on. He's a graduate from the London School of Economics with a degree in economic history and it subsequently took the advanced management program at Enseed in France. He started his career at Citibank in 1985, where he trained as a portfolio manager before joining Morgan Stanley in 1989. Over the last 17 years there, he managed the global balance portfolio was a chairman of the European Asset Allocation Committee and chief investment uh, CIO for the uh, for the last 12 years. He was a CEO and owner of the Vantage Investment Advisory. In addition, he is a senior advisor to Rothschild in London and governor of Clifton College and chairman of the Development Trust and served as the trustee of Great Ormond Street Hospital. He is currently also the host of the incredible, well-renowned Money Maze podcast, which has featured incredible guests like Michael Lewis, which is the best-selling author of Big Short, Sir Chris Hone, which is a billionaire hedge fund manager, and so many others. Please welcome my next guest, the one and only Simon Brewer. How are you doing today, Simon? Christian, I've never had an introduction like that. It's fantastic. I think we should just stop the interview right now. <laughs> well, man, I'm excited about having this conversation. And, you know, what was so interesting is you're a very humble dude. I can tell right off the bat because of your experience in, and, and your incredible knowledge in this industry. And you've been a CIO uh, for, for very large companies. You've also been the CEO for, obviously, your company currently. And I want to ask you this in regards to Simon. The young Simon, think about that young Simon that was just starting 1989, 1985, and nineteen ninety. You've been through a lot of ups and downs, right? You know, a lot of turmoil industries. And now you're at this age where you're looking back at that history and you're looking at that young Simon. And I'm curious, Simon, what insecurities, what what kind of things did you have to overcome to become the Simon that you are now? So it seems many of your listeners will go, oh my God, he's that old. 1985 is the dark ages. Well, uh, and somebody in fact sent me the Goldman Sachs recruitment video. It was a video of 1983. And they're all smoking cigarettes in this cloud of haze in the dealing rooms. It's like another world. And all I would say is that, you know, I've been extraordinarily lucky to be in this industry for, uh, for all that time and work for some, you know, some terrific firms. But I was absolutely clueless coming out of university. I mean, you know, now we interview polished graduates from business schools. I mean, I was not alone. We did not have an idea. I mean, I went to the School of Economics, and that was pretty miraculous getting in there. And you know, what paid best, consultancies and investment banks, and Goldman's was hardly, hardly known. And I mean, I turned up at that interview at Goldman Sachs, which was in uh, the spring of 1985, two beautifully dressed you know, individuals come, come over from New York and they sort of sat me down and said, Simon, you know, what would you like to do at Goldman's? And I'd asked my flatmate the night before and he'd given me a, what seemed like an absolutely excellent answer. And I said, I'd like to do portfolio management for high net worth individuals. And the guy looked at me and said, we don't do that. And I said, I'm very flexible. 
uh, and uh, the interview ended and I didn't get a job at Goldman Sachs. So I have been incredibly lucky, but I would not for a sec second suggest that there was a master plan out there. It was like, who paid quite well? And in fact, I didn't get the job at um, Goldman Sachs. I interviewed alongside Michael Lewis, who you mentioned at Salmon Brothers, who did get the job exactly that year. Um, and I joined Citibank, which I can tell you was uh, exactly half the salary um, of the other two firms. So when you're when you're looking at and because you've now uh, you know interviewed a quite a quite incredible list of individuals and you've obviously been in this industry and you've worked with some very well established firms, so how has your paradigm of investing changes if if it has? Yes, I mean I have been sort of learning to be an investor because it is a a journey without a without a final destination. Um, and one where the whole map, uh, or if you like the chessboard, had suddenly more pieces put on it. Because when we started out in the mid 80s, private equity wasn't a conversation, listed real estate wasn't a conversation, hedge funds were you know, in their infancy. So, so it was stocks, bonds, cash, and foreign exchange if you sat outside of the US as, a, as, a, as another important component. And, and then gold, which we might come back to later in the conversation. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think that in the last, a few years one can be cynical or at least suggest that central banks have changed the game courtesy of you know zero interest rates which persisted for way too long but I have to say interviewing so many smart people has just made me realize how little I know and that you know when I'm asked about certain asset classes there are some like private equity where it's very difficult to offer anything of value because round the table because just not an expertise I have. I you know I tend to have worked in public markets, equity, bonds, currencies, done a lot of you know thinking about strategic and other asset allocations. But but you know it's a complex world and there are some you know, really just fantastically smart people out there. Although as we know, being fantastically smart doesn't doesn't lead to sustained uh, you know sustained returns. So, and that makes sense in regards to obviously you gravitate toward one, and, and I, I do find it interesting the compli complexities of this industry has multiplied tremendously. There's a lot of alternative investing strategies, like you just mentioned, in regards to natural resources and, of course, uh, you know, private markets, which I find very interesting. Hedge funds were, like you just mentioned, in the infancies during that time. So, have there been certain mental models that you have always leaned on during this evolution of your journey? Well, I think it's probably not unusual that at some point you get air cover from somebody in a firm who really kind of helps you on your journey. And, and, and certainly I had that both at Citibank and at Morgan Stanley. And then the people who come along who influence you unless you are very clear at the start, certainly in terms of investment philosophy. And I think I found myself exposed to people who would fall under the, the value umbrella from an early stage. So one tended to you know, be more sympathetic to, you know, to, to notions of, of, of value, and you know, one knows the sort of the well-known value investors. But one, you know, the problem about that is, is that you know, this is a humbling business, and if you get too wedded to either a discipline or a even a valuation approach, you can miss large parts of large cycles. And certainly, I've you know, I've learned that uh, you know, at my expense, that. You know the need to be open-minded. It's that cognitive dissonance. If, if all you read is research that supports your own views, then you're not, um, you know, you're not, um, you're not really thinking. What was the? Uh, it was General Patton, wasn't it? The, the famous American general who said in some discussion about the Second World War, "If you're all thinking the same way, none of you is thinking." 
So, you know, I, it's important to be challenged. And, you know, I definitely am a big believer in that where it's, you know, obviously iron sharpened iron in this, in this concept. And so, Simon, if you're looking back at your journey, your own history, I would imagine there were probably certain pivotal moments in your life where maybe it was kind of a misstep and you had to learn from that experience or there was a little bit of, you know, hurt or a little pain or frustration a little bit, whether it's misstep of, of market, you know, understanding or, you know, reading the data wrong or whatever or the, the, the trajectory. I do know you have a degree in economic finance and history. And you've obviously looked at history and we all know history repeats itself. And I want to ask, Simon, how do you approach it? Not as in regards to like what's what we see right now in the, in the historical kind of cycle, but really how do you approach it where it's like this methodology, these principles that you've established that, hey, it doesn't matter what cycle we're in right now. It's how you're able to identify that from looking at history. How do you how does Simon look at it in a historical context to identify what we're where we're in the, the methodologies that you use or the principles that you use yes i mean there are various adaptations of the mark twain quotation but i like i like winston churchill's which is the further back you look the further ahead you can see and and the value of that is because human behavior repeats itself i mean why why did the powers that be in America and the US not stop when they went into Afghanistan, you know, after the Iraq war and just, you know, just draw on the history lessons from, you know, from powers that had failed. And, and so uh, to expect exact parallels would be wrong, but to expect similarities shaped by human proclivity, particularly greed and fear, um, I think is, is instructive. Now, we've been through an extraordinary period, uh, you know, ushered in since the general, the great financial crisis, the GFC, in 2007 and eight, when as the financial system seemed to be imploding, so, you know, central banks, you know, cut rates and then introduced what was previously unthinkable policies. Now, one can argue whether those were appropriate and right at the time. Um, what, what I think is less debatable is for the, the, the length of time that those policies were kept in place. And in doing that, created behaviours that are unhelpful in terms of, you know, money should have a proper price to it, and if you create too much free money, you get malinvestment and you get consequences of that. And I guess the question, if you are looking back at previous histories, I suppose, it, 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 and I am doing that, it would lead me to think that it is unlikely we're going to simply have a short, painful, rate-tightening cycle, which was ushered in, you know, a year ago, and for the world to slow in a sort of an orderly way without more severe consequences in terms of economic activity and fallouts. So, you know, we had, okay, last year was an uncomfortable year, you know, in the, you know, in the, um, in the growth end of the spectrum, coming off an extraordinary year, you know, the year before. But I, I guess my sense is that there's going to be a period ahead that won't look like the previous 20 years and may look like something that we saw in the, in the 1970s, you know, in some respects. When you think about, you know, the inflation debate, inflation is extremely difficult to predict. So I can sit here and give you, you know, give you numbers and sense, but in reality, we don't know. But once it gets into the system and it gets into expectations, it's difficult to eradicate. So you have that, number one. You've had a tightening cycle that's still ongoing, number two. You've had this war, which is an exogenous force, bringing in price rises. But of course, that and COVID are forcing corporations to think about their supply lines. There is this 
friend shoring or onshoring or near shoring. You know, the reason these folks went away was to reach lower cost labor and coming back, they're going to be, you know, finding costs are higher and that will, uh, it seems to me, have an impact on margins and, and you know, margins are a mean reverting form. So I can see an environment you know, that, that might persist for a long time. It might be a decade in which you have these cycles, but overall returns are lower, inflation is more sticky, um, and it's just a lot harder. And that, that culture of free money that has spawned all sorts of activities, including lots of stuff in private markets, just, I think, gets a lot more difficult. Well, what I love about talking with people like yourself that have been through a lot of ups and downs in market is you have experience, right? You have experience under your belt that other people like myself, they, I don't, right? I've never been through 2000. I mean, we have been 2000, but I don't remember it. I was young. But my point is, is that when you're looking at a company and they're kind of maybe like, you know, looking to buy it, you're always looking at certain KPIs and those KPIs, that data that you're gathering tells a story. And you have to identify what that's telling that story within the last five years of, you know, measurements or, or, or you know, f specific financials. But it's the same thing that I love about history a little bit. You're seeing these patterns that establish, right? And like you just mentioned, there are certain, you know, KPIs or measurements that you're looking at and saying, okay, well, we've been in this situation in the 1980s. There was this high inflation. There was a lot of interest rates. The interest rates are tremendous much more in the 1980s and here in the U.S. that was uh, compared to obviously now. And, the, and people are really, you know, uh, getting really frustrated with it. Well, the interest rates are really high, but the reality is compared to what, right? Compared to obviously 0%, sure, but also compared to 1980s, it's actually relatively low, right? In the US, that is. So what I always find interesting, Simon, is how individuals like yourself, you can look at the macro, but then also you're able to interpret this data on, on a real live basis from the experience that you've established. And you use some like some 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 sort of KPIs, but also that's telling you a story and how you're interpreting it, and then how you can navigate it for future use as well. So, with that being said, um, you know, how is there a methodology? Is there a principle, like you mentioned, where okay, there are certain KPIs, certain indi indi uh, indi uh, indexes that you're leveraging, you're identifying at a macro or a micro level, and say, okay, hey, we've seen this. Now this is the story it's telling me. This is kind of the picture. This is the foundation. This is where we're going and navigating it. So I'd love for you to just share um, kind of that whole macro or micro level that you're looking at uh, at this, um, you know, global global economy. So, tough question, Christian, thank you. Uh, I think that if one is looking at the map of building blocks that create a portfolio, you know, one has those components, bonds, cash, stocks, then you can move up into these higher risk categories. And each of those contains a set of investment parameters that might give you comfort. So you look at fixed income and you go, wow, you know, I can get, you know, 5% on a two-year bond right now, you know, happy days. But, you know, if inflation persists at 7 or 6, it's a, negative, it's a negative yield. It's better than it was when it was zero and inflation was uh, 3 or 4. Um, so, you know, fixed income's gone from being uninvestable to being potentially investable, but it may be that in looking back, one says, okay, where was the real damage done in you know, the US government bonds in, you know, in, in, in that long post-war period when inflation kicked in and you know, the longest damage was done in, in longer duration. So if you are keeping short, uh, you're giving yourself some more protection. Then you go, well, actually, one subcomponent is credit. 
do I want to be going to, to, to credit? And, I, and we did have Greg Peters, who runs Pigeon, the huge listing firm in the US. And I was very sympathetic when, when he said, I think it's still too early, because after all, corporate credit looks a lot like equity. And if you're getting worried about you know, an economic cycle and earnings, et cetera. So, so, so part of the answer is you need to look at these building blocks relative to their own history and the factors that dictate. You know, equity investors love stories, which is why they ratchet onto a Tesla and they'll run it up until the valuation makes, you know, to many of us, absolutely no sense. And you know what? If you map Tesla on Bitcoin, you get a chart that has quite a high correlation. And, you know, no surprise. Now, Tesla might be a lot more useful than Bitcoin, in my opinion, but nevertheless, there's a price for everything. And then, so then you go into the equity universe. And I say that because equity investors like um, like, the, the, like, like the story, fixed income investors tend to prefer the numbers. So we, you know, growing up in more of an equity culture, we used to look at the fixed income guys and think they were a bit nerdy, and they used to look at us and think we were full of all sorts of things. So, but then you come to the world of equities, and you know, the U.S. has had this extraordinary epoch of outperformance. It's two thirds of the world stock markets, you know, and and many would have expected that over the last two decades where there's been global growth from all quarters, their percentage of the world stock market capitalization would have declined. But the US was the father to these fantastic tech platform companies that we all know and came to be known as the Fangs, and they became sort of you know the darlings and in many ways became the must-haves in the portfolio. But of course, if you're a global investor, which is sort of almost the luxury of not sitting in the US, is you go, well, hang on a second, We've got very different forces at work. You know, Europe has been suffering for some time you know, with a, what we might call eurosclerosis. One currency fits all, that creates problems, lack of you know, productivity, lack of top-line growth, aging demographics. But then you cast your eyes across to Asia and you go, well, hang on, it's an 8 billion you know, population world and we've got two-thirds of the world's population sitting over there. You, know, you have countries like Vietnam and the Philippines, each at 100 million. You've got countries of Indonesia, which are, what is it, the third or fourth biggest country in the world, and we haven't even got to China and India. And you go, well, hang on, where's the growth? And, you know, our lens, Peter Frankopan, who was a guest who wrote that beautiful book, The Silk Roads, made the comment that many of us in the West have our eyes stitched closed. And that, of course, is, you know, is a little bit of a reflection of a Western sense of superiority in, you know, and, and history, but if you then say, well, hang on a second, you take the Hong Kong market, which, uh, you know, last time I looked at the data, over sort of 40 years, had a companies had a similar return on equity to the US, and yet its valuation has obviously plummeted. Now, some of that is because of genuine geopolitical concerns around China and where that might be going, but Asia is much bigger you know, than China. So then you're saying, well, it's not about whether I look at Tesla versus General Motors, it's about whether I look at... Um, Allocating capital to some of those other markets that are at very different, you know, stages of their growth, and then on top of that, you can come to quite an interesting conversation about currencies, which is another thing altogether. And if Western central banks are intent on essentially debasing their currencies by printing more and more of them, then it's sort of almost a race to the bottom. And then you say, well, hang on a second, who wins that game? And then you go, well, hang on a second, who's been the best at that? And it's been the Swiss. So, so th I've probably answered that, you know, by walking around the park a bit. But lots of different assets, and the the lens you apply, or I would apply, or I've learned to apply by people much smarter than me, is you need to look at those, you know, 
sure, a global context is helpful, but you need to look at those relative to the metrics that are most appropriate. No, that I appreciate you unpacking that. Uh, and I know that was a big question to unpack that. And you really did an excellent, you know, elegant job of doing that because I found that very interesting in regards to like, you know, we even see in the tech industry here in the U.S. where it had that massive, massive spike, you know, obviously that up, up to the right trajectory. And now it's kind of, you know, you know, cooling off a little bit, not saying that it's not still going to, you know, obviously have an uptick, but it's a really good context in regards to that industry. If you would have obviously, you know, got on that forefront, you know, several years back, you would have been on that forefront where you would have been able to, you know, um, you know, hold on to that, you know, up to that right trajectory. That was that industry. We're seeing ESG very similar right now in regards to like, we're seeing that, you know, a lot of, lot of tailwind behind that, a lot of trajectory, a lot of that. And so uh, we'll see if it has that up to the right trajectory as well. Um, so Simon, I want to ask in regards to when you're looking, when you've, you've, you've talked to incredible people, uh, you know, like I mentioned, you know, billionaires to, to uh, in, individuals that have been in this space that have, you know, uh, allocated a lot of capital um, and, and have done very well for themselves. And you, with all the people that you have talked to, um, and I know it's probably hard to isolate this, but I love to, un, you know, unpack, like, what were some of the big, big, big moments uh, on the podcast, the people that you've had interviewed, uh, you know, being able to rub up against some of the some of the greats like yourself as well in the f financial world that you have um, you have you have really, you know, really appreciated in regards to the feedback or, or, or regards to some of the uh, some of the things that you learned from, uh, you know, networking and talking to some of those guests. Well, in case any of my friends are listening to this, I have to correct you, Christian, because you said I'm one of the greats, and they will now be clicking off rapidly, going, "This is this guy's a fraud." That's me, not you. So, so I have spoken to greats, and I've just been a very lucky traveller on this on this road. Um, well, let's start with the worst, and the worst example I will give of podcasting and interviewing was I managed to secure Sir Ronald Cohen, who is very well known in Europe, less well known in the U.S., but he's sort of the father of venture capital investing, created you know, this firm Apex and has been done a lot of work for uh, G10 on impact investing in the, last, uh, in the last few years. And he was in Tel Aviv and I was in Switzerland. I did this recording and uh, I remember coming down to my family who was staying in a hotel by the pool. They said, how was the podcast? And I said, well, I forgot to hit record. And that was after one hour. So, so, so that podcast, he was gr generous and gracious enough to, uh, to give me another hour of his time. But that was a low point in podcast. But that really wasn't your question. Everybody's got an interesting story. There's that lovely expression, you know, is, 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 everybody should have a sign on their forehead, forehead which says, you know, ask me a question and I'll tell you a story. I'm quite interesting. You know, th 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 you know. And the great thing about this podcast medium is, I mean, I, you and I have had a conversation before this. I don't really know you, but it is quite disarming. I mean, I, you, the podcast interviewer, if they are good at their job, are, is able to unpack and and, and find a lot more than you might expect if you're just sitting in a regular interview. And it's rather, it, it is quite bizarre as a, as a medium why it, why it does that. The lessons that I've learned, and we are thinking about writing a book around the Money Maze podcast, drawing on some of those you know, just fantastic insights. Um, and it would be difficult to... Uh, to, you know, to bring them all together. But, you know, we did interview General Petraeus recently. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, so I spent my life carrying this little book around and writing down, you know, writing down competitive, uh, sorry, write, writing down quotations. And, you know, one of the things that General Petraeus said is luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Now, 
that has been said before in various guises, but when you hear the people who have been at the top of their game, he also said life is a competitive endeavour, you have to embrace that reality you know, and compete. Now, not everybody necessarily would like that, but a lot of people listening to your podcast will be quite competitive in nature. They will be trying to succeed or have succeeded in their, in the, in their inventions. So I think that um, in talking to you know, the obvious, should we say, rock stars of life, like, like, like a General Petraeus, you get certain sort of uh, almost expected thoughts and perspectives about discipline, leadership, collaboration, you know, uh, then you get um, people like Michael Lewis, you know, Michael Lewis, who is a master storyteller. And as I said, he and I were at the LSE together and, you know, it took a lot of persistence finally to, to, to reconnect and to nail him down. And just what humour, what anecdotes, what insight, when he tells about the pandemic story that led to his book Premonition, you know, it was the quality of the research. And I think that, again, for most of these people who have been very successful, it's not accidental. You know, they may have been born with a lot of talent. I suspect that, again, it's that old perspiration versus inspiration. And, you know, lots of them are hard workers. I, I picked up that quotation by, I forget which great tennis player it was. It was that, you know, hard work beats talent when talent stops working hard. And I think that um, in most of these cases, these are dedicated folks who, you know, who have done great things. Joan uh, Solitar, again from Blackstone, who runs their private marketing division, you know, passionate but very you know, coherent and, you know, and, and logical. And then there's a whole element of patience because uh, uh, we're all in a hurry. And we, we can't bear to have you know, so much information around that we're clicking from one thing to another and we're not, you know, there's, there's, there's information but it was T.S. Eliot who said, where's the knowledge and information? I might have got it the wrong way around, but I oh, even get so much stuff thrown at us. How often do we absolutely sit back and process it and you know, learn from it? But I guess the three things that I have taken from 100 plus interviews um, are that those people who I have admired most have had you know, some combination of tenacity, patience, willingness to be knocked back, um, and generally um, some good EQ to complement, you know, the IQ and the hard work. Uh, so those are the things that you, you took away from, you know, interviewing hundreds upon hundreds of uh, incredible, incredible leaders. Uh, I love that. I, I think that's just really, really interesting to see, hear that from, from someone like yourself that uh, is, is rubbing against some of these greats. And like I mentioned, I, I, would, I would reiterate that you are one of the greats because you're able to, you know, facilitate those relationships. Simon, I want to ask you in regards to also <laughs> – with that being said, uh, and, and obviously you're a very humble individual, um, have you always um, approached, uh, you know, investing uh, at a macro, micro, uh, equities, uh, even the relationships that you have in a humble nature? Or has that always been kind of a learning thing that you had to establish throughout your journey? Well, I think knowing one's limitations is really helpful. And you mentioned Sir Chris Hoon, who was a guest on, on the show, who runs TCI, one of the world's most successful hedge funds. I mean, you know, when you listen to a person like that, you think, wow, that's just fantastic, you know, intelligence. Pete Davis from Lazda. I never had that problem um, because I didn't think I was ever in their camp of sort of, you know, brilliance. I think that I became a disciple of some of the greats and tried to absorb some of their lessons and learn, synthesize, adapt. Um, 
you know, I think intuition becomes, uh, you know, quite an important component in the investing process. I look at charts a lot. So if we were to sit here, you know, and, and, and wanted to talk about the Swiss franc, the first thing I'd want to do is I'd want to reach to a chart and show you, you know, the Swiss franc against the dollar or against sterling over 30 years. Historical perspective, you know, what were the lessons? Why did, why did, and I'm going to quote it in sterling, but it's, well, you can take the dollar, sterling. So sterling is dollar is one point, you know, one eight today, but it was four and a half, you know, around the time end of the Second World War. And a, a pound buys you just over one Swiss franc. Go back to 1969 and it bought you 12 francs. You know, when you run high inflation and high deficits, you disembowel the currency over time relative to countries that do a better job of not running those deficits and not having persistent inflation. Um, so I think that really I've learned from others, smarter people along the way, and that is, you know, and where I've made my investing mistakes, of which there have been many, it's probably where I have sort of, you know, believed too much in, in, in the certainty of an outcome. You know, you take the great financial crisis, it came along, I was at a, you know, a, a you know, hedge fund which had survived that GFC extremely well, came out of it, and sort of in the 2016 sort of time, we kind of thought, you know, that's enough. The markets have run this cheap money. It's got to end badly. You started you know, hedging up and, and therefore being less, less of a participant in the market. The market keeps on going and the market, you know, makes fools of us all. So, so I think learning not to be too inflexible and too obdurate is being you know, really important. You know, if you listen to, um, oh, uh, Jeremy Grantham at GMO, obviously you know, one of the great investors, um, and, and people might say, "Well, my gosh, you know, up until last year, you've been wrong for a decade." And, and you know, that's a little bit of the problem. It's that whole success, successful investing is a minority sport. It's hard to consistently, you know, crank out the numbers. So humility, flexibility, um, but you've got to have some anchoring point as well. You've got to have some sense of where your you know, wh where your stake has been driven into the ground in terms of how far you're happy to go away in one direction or another from that. Um, which, which is why when you talk to the endowments and the large allocators, and we're in the middle of doing a series with some of the world's largest wealth funds and allocators, is they have typically a strategic asset allocation. They have a, you know, a framework and they'll have accepted deviations from that so that they don't wake up in a cold sweat one morning and decide to sell all of their equities and put it all into fixed income. Well, see, and this is why I, I, I love this conversation because I think it's so interesting. Ray Dalio really, you know, and you just mentioned this as well, where uh, Ray Dalio was mentioning, obviously, you know, the U.S. went off the gold standard and he thought the market would tank when the reality of the market, what did it do? It just went up. It wouldn't, it didn't really make any sense, right, logically. But then that's where, you know, human psychology or human behavior in the market, it just, it's, it's almost conflicting a little bit. So this is what I want to ask you in regards to your approach um, from, from your history of uh, investing. You mentioned you've invested in something and you're like, you know what, 100%, this is it. All the indicators are green. It's looking good. But in the market, for some reason, whether it's political influence, whether it's geopolitical, whether it's whatever, some, some, something you can't control, tells the market to go this way and it doesn't make any sense at all. Simon, logically, because we understand that, you know, human human biases and obviously there's a lot of you know psychologists that have done a lot of research and a lot of um, you know research on this topic where, hey, if someone nobody likes to take a loss, 100 percent sure loss. Right. We'd rather say, you know, I'm 100 percent right. And, you know, just go in. So with that being said, knowing your own biases, Simon, how do you when you know you're wrong? 
how do you ensure you put the right boundaries or systems or a stop loss to mitigate that risk in case that you don't, you know, obviously lose your shirt. Like you mentioned, endowments don't just put everything in it uh, or like crypto or whatever it may be. We may see all these up to the right trajectories, but sometimes the market obviously uh, for whatever external reason we can't control um, – all the indicators could say one thing and then the market decides to do something totally different and it doesn't make any logical sense. So what indicators or what boundaries do you put in play whenever you have an investment thesis or investment strategy to ensure that you mitigate that risk? Well, there is an expression that is relevant here, which is that we as investors, given that we are frail individuals, have a habit, um, to use gardening analogy, of watering our weeds and pruning our roses and that of course in a portfolio context means that we're reluctant to cut you know the losers because two things happen when you cut a loser you realize the loss and you're wrong and the numbers have told you that and whether it's to yourself or to your colleagues and we hate that because we you know we're, we're because we're smart we're investors you know we're kings of the universe and of course it's that's just not the way it is so so I think that you come down to some basic principles. Is if what if your allocation is so large to something that it is keeping you up at night, clearly you've got the wrong allocation. So discipline is absolutely key. And I'm a great believer in. Now I don't, you know, I'm not a baseball person. I'm a cricket person. We talk about you know taking singles rather than sort of hitting the ball out of the park. I'm mixing my sporting analogies here. I.e., I think making money over time is about lots of small decisions that you know that on balance turn out to be right rather than swinging for the fences and occasionally you get a you know a big but you expose yourself so discipline is really important and discipline comes in two contexts number one how much are you going to allocate to an asset class that is sensible and if things really unwind um you um you won't get unstuck you know because if you get up you want to stay on the pitch that is absolutely key if you get taken out because you've taken too much risk that's bad and one of the reasons people do get taken out is they use leverage so, you know, lots of people listening to this will say that, yeah, but, you know, leverage is used in certain contexts. Well, of course, it, it is used in, co in, in, in all sorts of contexts, but at a portfolio level, you know, leverage cuts both ways. And, you know, bad stuff happens when leverage works, you know, against you. So you've got a framework to suggest boundaries. You need to be, you know, and I don't see why typically you should be using leverage at all in a, you know, in, in, in a, in a portfolio you know, context. And that diversification uh, was always referred to, you know, as the as the um, you know as the only free lunch in investing. I interviewed the head of Mercer's Investing Consulting yesterday, and she said she actually thought the only free lunch was governance, as in the G in E S and G. Still got to you know think about that, but you know that makes you know it does make some some sense for me. Um, but it is finally knowing that that that, that if certain things eventuate that you weren't expecting, there is either an event or a price limit or something that will determine an action. And the, and the really good hedge funds, for example, who are you know, using leverage in many cases and have large and concentrated positions, and for whom, of course, if you are allocated, and I do allocate to several hedge funds myself, you know why you've made that allocation and you know how much you've made for the allocation. So although they're using leverage, it's within a new context. They are often some of the best at cutting their positions, recognizing their, their you know their losses, and actually being um, just clinical, brutal, and unemotional. And that's a great thing because you think about those polarities, 
that we suffer from greed and fear, where you know we're typically drawn to act by doing the wrong thing at the wrong time, and that just repeats itself you know, over and over again. And it is so difficult. And, tr and the great investors, you know, typically you know fight against that, etc. But that's why you know you need those uh, th those disciplines uh, in place, and that the cutting of a bad position. Uh, as in taking your losses can be right, and you don't always have to make your money back in the same thing that you lost it in. So you know one has to remain open-minded, not be emotionally detached, and that's a little bit of the problem. You know, there was a well-known UK fund manager who was a huge supporter of this German company Wirecard. Now Wirecard turned out to be a fraud, um, but you know there were pronouncements you know regularly from him and others, you know, uh, that this was a great company, etc. But you know. There's, there was an old adage from a very brilliant lady called Louise Yamada who used to be at Salomon Smith Barney, and she said, in price there is knowledge. And sometimes, just sometimes, the market is telling you something uh, and, and does give you time. Why is, you know, remember Cisco, when we go back, Cisco was, you know, the great switching company up into the, you know, as the internet exploded, Cisco was at the absolute heart of it. And yet there was a time when stocks started not to go up as much on good news and started to fail, and you can, you, you know, there's there, there is this discounting process. So, um, just one has to be sensitive and sensible. You know, you you, I love your 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 thesis in regards to how you approach that because it is a very methodical way, and like you mentioned, you know, working and and having the right boundaries and the systems, but also laying that out to say, hey, you know what. And then that's where the humility comes into play, where you know what you know and what you don't know and acknowledging the both and then obviously building the right boundaries and systems to ensure that. But like you mentioned, being surgical with it, saying, hey, you know what? My emotions are not in it. These are the systems. This is what we, we, we associated with it, and that's how we're going to deploy capital. I want to ask in regards to um, you know, you you are big uh, – and your experience comes from – uh, you know, commodity side of world where you've done a lot of investing in that in that thesis, and gold and uranium right now specifically because it is very interesting. And like you mentioned, I love that approach where you're. That's where you know diversification is very important because you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. There, you're, you're putting your assets into non-correlated things, right? So that obviously, if if one tanks, that's okay. If something you know uh, you know rocks and roll, obviously you want that to kind of balance out a little bit. So with that being said, in the, in the back of your your history uh, with the commodity side of the world, what are you seeing uh, right now in regards to you know gold, uranium, specifically in regards to asset classes? Okay. How long have we got? Um, I, uh, I, I think that um, I'm going to, if you'll allow me, be a little... Um, particular and say to you that gold is not a commodity. One of the most attractive things about gold is that it is not, its demand and supply is not influenced by, is not influenced by the financial cycle. Oil is a commodity. You know, it responds to demand factors that are, that, that are obvious. One of the reasons I've owned gold, I own gold is an important part of my allocation, has been for a very long time, is that I am just inherently untrusting of the central banks who continue to print more and more of their currencies and they lose purchasing power. You don't buy gold because you think it's going to be, you know, go up a multiple of, you know, any number of, you know, like you might buy a stock. What you're asking gold to do is to preserve the purchasing power and, you know, over long periods of history, that's what gold has done. 
has a very nice analogy of a gold sovereign and what it can buy you at, S at the Savoy for lunch in terms of a bottle of wine and you know uh, and, and lunch and you know gold sovereign can do what it did you know, hundred years ago for example now they're cycling gold can get ahead of itself and get behind itself but but so I'm just going to I didn't want to be um, pernickety but you own gold as a currency in my view and you view it not as a commodity but something that gives you protection from the ravages of inflation and bad behavior by central banks because paper currency regimes don't persist but okay so I'm going to park that there Christian I'm going to come to commodities I think that um, in this shift to a clean energy, a greener world, a reduction in fossil fuels, there are a couple of points I'd make. By and large, I think politicians are being uh, way too ambitious about the timelines. Okay, but we'll just park that for now. But if we then say, because 85% of the world's energy is still provided by fossil fuels and you've had a depletion of investment and hey presto, what have you got? You've got you know, not enough supply, not enough investment and you know, well, I wouldn't be surprised if, if after a correction that may be sort of going on, the oil price ends up a lot higher and the gas price. But in solving for the energy transition, I think a really interesting discussion is you know, who and what wins? Now, there's no single silver bullet to solve the solution for powering the world's needs for energy. I think it's going to come from multiple sources. And we know the environmentally friendly and the absolute you know, importance of solar. We understand gas. We understand wind. We understand some of the temporary and intermittent nature of those as well. But it strikes me that uranium, which had had a, uh, a crushing bear market, with huge oversupply, some of it coming out of decommissioned nuclear weapons, has reached an inflection point. There's been some great work done by firms like Sprott, a uh, listed you know, company, obviously the listed asset manager, who actually have a separately listed um, uranium uh, ETF. Um, and I think it forms part of quite a nice way of looking at how that works out. You know, some of these energy companies are at the forefront of change and they have fantastic balance sheets and big cash flows and own dominant you know, positions. So, so I've liked those for a while and some of them, Shell BP for example in the UK, have been working very hard in this energy transition or are going to be big investors. RWE, which was a dirty German coal company, is again sort of you know, making that transition and investors have had to grapple with do they want to be with a company in transition or do they not want to and if they don't want to who are they selling their shares to and how are they helping because if they're not having a robust discussion with the management what who are they serving but we'll park that you know as well for the moment and then you go well what's really interesting is if you're going to put up more wind towers and charging stations and all of the stuff that is going to go with the energy transition and this development and we're not even talking about the rebuild of ukraine which will be an extraordinary event you know what you're going to dig up a lot of stuff that people are some will say, oh, this isn't very nice. Well, you know what? How are you going to get the copper out of the ground and you know, into, in, into the machinery? And how are you going to get the steel for the wind towers? So I actually am quite persuaded by the argument that there is a really interesting secular boom you know, out there for a number of these commodities. Um, and and I, as an investor, I want to have you know, exposure to that because I think that's how you solve for this particular part of the... Uh, you know, the, the energy transition. So um, that's, a, again, maybe a slightly long, long, long argument. Gold is a separate, you know, story. Purchasing 
preservation of purchasing power. Uranium is just one part of the, uh, the energy equation, and I think the energy configuration will evolve quite interestingly and um, you know and, and, and I happen to uh, I happen to be persuaded that you know uranium's, uranium could play quite a useful so role. I like your approach in regards to using gold as a hedge right and just kind of re reframing that uh, the, the, the way to approach you know gold and your guys strategy in regards to your investment side of things so that's a really important kind of um, well allocation and differentiation. Now, in regards to the commodity side of things, and specifically in the energy, I'm glad we kind of went this way. I find this very interesting because it is, this is a really good example, the ESG world, where the, the logic and the emotion, it, it's kind of like, it, it's a conflicting situation because the logic is saying, well, we don't have, there's still a lot of reliance on natural resources, natural gas. And yes, there's a, still a lot of opportunity with the ESG, but there's been a lot of, you know, subsidi you know uh, subsidized by the government, specifically here in the U.S to you know really infuse a lot of capital in that and we've seen a lot of infused capital in this industry but we haven't seen the results or the output of energy as much as you know obviously natural resources it's still obviously uh definitely here in the u.s i can't i can't talk uh, outside of the u.s that is but um that's what we're noticing and so though what you're basically saying simon i don't want to you know put words in your mouth but what you're saying is that even though it hasn't got there in regards to the ESG world, in regards to the output of energy, like natural resources, it still means that you still want to have exposure in this because at some point we know in a, in a specific timeline that we really can't put a, you know, a, a stamp on, we know at some point it will match the natural resources. Is that correct in regards to how you're, how you're thinking you want exposure to this ecosystem or an investment thesis because you do understand at some point it will match the output of, of energy that natural resources has? Yes, there are probably two levels to the decision making that I went through as I tried to process what was a collapse in the oil price during COVID. In fact, the futures contract went negative at one stage, and most of us never thought we'd see oil go negative, you know, in there. And then some of the smart operators started buying up the tankers and storing the oil off, off, offshore, etc. So there are two dimensions to it. You know, the world, the, the world was going to, you know, we had this unimaginable situation where the both the supply side and the demand side of Western economies was shut down all economies essentially for a while with all of the attendant consequences but the world was going to you know, start again and consumption of energy would feature large and population would drive that and etc cetera, etc cetera. so then you had that as your sort of your map okay the world resumes but with an urgency to recognize climate change and the need for reduction in carbon emissions etc so it was to say well you know, what's a realistic timeline and who, how do you want to participate in that because you'd had valuations be absolutely crushed so you know, the big oil stocks you know have been taken down for reasons of collapsing profitability and the whole sort of you know uh, uh, movement against these big dirty energy companies many of whom as I said like BP and others were actually trying to do something now you've had a big big re-rating of these companies from there so at one level of the portfolio in an investor context was going hang on huge part of the market I'm going to get this slightly wrong but let's just say at its peak oil energy stocks might have been 20% of the S&P and they went to four at the very time the fangs had gone from next to nothing to 25% of the S&P and you know they are down at 20 so you get those extremes always difficult to pick those extremes. so so the contrarian in me was going well hang on a second you know these are companies with long history big balance sheets huge cash flows they can you know they can metamorphosize as well so that was well but also you know there's going to be absolute evolution in that space towards newer sources of energy 
but you know what's going to be you know uh, underpinning them you know who's making the picks and shovels you know to help support the extraction and then you go well, hang on a second there's a whole subset of the mining industry here that's going to you know arguably be you know, very well placed and then you look at the EV and you know we know what happened to some of the EV manufacturers but you know and the, the battery components and and so so I think what the really good investors that I've observed over the years have been able to process the, the, the you know the second and third order consequences and, and, and where that might create opportunities. So, you know, I don't know what the timeline is going to be, but I think it's going to be much longer than gov governments have hoped, and that's not unreasonable. Governments are unreasonable, I mean, in their expectations, and they are happy to sign up to great pledges, and they won't be around when those, when those time periods, you know, come. So, but I do think the investing um, uh, landscape is quite interesting because you can play it through old energy but you can also play it through newer energies but as you go into the newer component you're dealing with as you've alluded cash flows that aren't you know aren't there yet in many cases these are businesses that are being developed um, so again you have to skew your investments depending on your timeline but you know for most investors you know there's always it's well documented uh, an excitement around new technologies and new businesses and therefore propensity to put money into these things but you know building new businesses is damn hard so one has to just make sure that you're not carried away with the with the story which can be financially very damaging so you have to take things at face value and you have to gather that right data and then make you know interpret that data according to the obvc what, what's actually truly happening and not get too uh involved you know at a, a geopolitical world yes it sounds good you know zero you know zero emissions uh you know carbon all that stuff right eradicating all that however though we also have to have a realistic view in regards to okay what is our approach strategically because we still need that that energy um so that's that's awesome when you're Simon, because you you obviously have worked with uh, some very well-known um well-known, you know, uh, organizations and companies and, and people. And I'm curious in regards to when you're when you're working at a macro level and political world and how sometimes that doesn't uh, align with maybe the the indi indicators. And uh, this kind of comes along with with the market a little bit with with behavior and psychology a little bit, but specifically talking about politics. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because ESG is a really good example of, you know, it's a very good political headline. It's very sexy ESG. We talk about it, you know, zero emissions, all that fun stuff. But like we just kind of, you know, laid out a little bit in regards to the foundation, the realistic side of things is, well, we still may need to obviously have both of these parallels and natural resources in the ESG run at the same time while we're figuring this out and, you know, finding that balance act. We can't just cut off one umbilical cord and then hopefully, you know, survive off one. Uh, so I'm curious in regards to your investment strategy. Okay, how political politics and geopolitics, you know, do you do you emphasize that much when you're looking at the the macros uh, and and these these indicators um, in, in your investing thesis? How do you approach that in regards to bringing some of that in and anticipating some of the unexpected or uncertainty investing? Well, I think everybody loves to talk macro because it makes them sound more intelligent. And, um, and you know, the higher level conversations about politics and direction, you know, that's, you know, it's, it, it, it sounds good, but I think it's a significantly less used practically at a portfolio level because things happen that you didn't expect. Things take longer to materialize than, you know, many would have, uh, you know, have thought. And, you know, 
it's a little bit looking like the uh, GDP numbers of a fast-growing you know, economy. You might go, well, that's going to be great for the stock market, but often isn't. They've proven that, in fact, quite low correlations between economic growth and, and, you know, and stock market sort of, you know, stock market growth. So I think you should take much more, much more notice of what has happened and is happening you know, in terms of price discovery. You know, uh, a lot of those Asian markets were uh, derated, I'm talking about the stock markets, were derated because COVID hit them particularly hard. There was a disaffection with Asia. What always happens, hit a crisis, money comes home, people sell what they, you know, they, sell what they can, and you know, then you had the evident illiquidity in some of those you know, smaller markets always. Um, so I think that one has to be very careful about extrapolating geopolitical thoughts, ideas, and firmly held views, because you just take one. Let's take China. We had Neil Ferguson on the show, he's at the Hoover Institute, one of the brightest you know, men around, um, saying, you know, be careful when you own China because you know their geopolitical orientation is not that of the West and you know we could find ourselves you know or you could come in as investors having found you know, unwelcome developments perhaps regards it with Taiwan or or somewhere else and then you've got to really know why you own this now that of course could lead you very simply to say well I don't need to bother I don't need to ever invest any money there but you know, we don't know that in fact there a coexistence between the Chinese and the Americans is achieved despite political philosophies that are you know, diametrically opposed, and that the great companies like Tencent and Alibaba and others um, who don't prosper and after severe bear markets aren't you know, magnificent um, stocks to invest in. But how much do you want to allocate? How do you want to, you know, over what time frame? What's your risk tolerance? So, you know, the geopolitical, I mean, we can always, it's the old adage is that, you know, if, you, if you're always worrying about, you know, nuclear strike or about the next pandemic, then you wouldn't invest any money. And that's, and that's the road to ruin as well, because, and I didn't say that earlier on, Christian, going back to the you know, purchasing power, the number that others have produced is that the dollar has lost 99%, 99% of its purchasing power in the last 100 plus years. You know, it's it, see one of the things that I get excited about is is talking to people like yourself, because when when I'm able to talk to people like yourself, you guys look at the market in in a, in a flexible way. And and what I love about this is as things evolve, as things adjust, as uncertainty establishes and creates a little bit of certainty, you're starting to see the interest rates. Okay, cool, wonderful. Well, you just pivot and you are very flexible in the way you guys approach and you look at the constant change in the landscape and that comes with years of experience, with years of knowledge, with years of certain patterns and you fil filter all that through and it develops a certain story and that's what I was, uh, was my hope and, and, and really, Simon, I really appreciate you just sharing the, your methodology, the way you look at the never-ending, never-changing uh, world of finance and investing and these, 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 these macro and micro level side of things. Because it, like you mentioned, as the data is coming in, you have to interpret that data really on the fly and in, you know, in a very flexible manner. And so it's like you're wrong. you got to cut that loss, move forward and pivot and uh, really you know, 
make sure you obviously remove your, your, your emotions and, you know, go with the market and identify where the market's coming from. And Simon, you, you really, um, I really appreciate you being on and sharing your methodology, your principles, how you look at it. And I know you've had many years of experience in the economic, you know, historical financial side of things and how you can obviously leverage and lean on that information, those patterns to obviously, you know, with your future, future thought processes and the way you think about it in, 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 a, in a macro and a micro level. Uh, for those that want to reach out to you, um, you know, Simon, and, and consume more of your content and your incredible value that you have out there, how do they reach out to you and, and be part of what you got going on, Simon? Well, I would say that one of the, you know, most exciting and fortunate things is that sort of the team, my partner Will Campion, my colleague Oliver Bobmer, you know, here at Money Waste Podcast, and we're just about to add to a, you know, another person to the team. Um, you know, we get to interview so many interesting people that when we, we've sponsored five or six universities in the, in the, in the UK um, to help promote dialogue with young people thinking about sort of the workplace and finance and uh, uh, and. And when people say, you know, what do you think about this, that, or the other? How should I gain more knowledge? And we go, well, look, there are 100 interviews on our website, and they're free. And if you want to look at real estate or you want to look at private equity or venture capital, I mean, you've got the leading people from these firms. It's not about me. It's my job. It's just simply to ask sort of, you know, hopefully ask a half question, decent question and get out of the way. And then you can listen to people, you know, give their thoughts and perspectives. And that's just fantastically valuable. So we would typically say, sorry, wait. Hopefully you could edit the dropped headphones out of that. We would typically say to folks, go have a look at our website. Um, there's a treasure trove of, of you know, stuff that's on there and continues to be on there because we're about to release a series on the Sovereign Wealth Fund. Who would have thought that Culsters has such a different approach from Ontario Teachers? Who has such a different approach to the Australia Future Fund? And that's about passive versus active. That's about hedge funds, no hedge funds. That's about, you know, private equity. I mean, extraordinary. So that's a great place to start, themoneymakespodcast.com. And then we have, you know, we do have email addresses on there. And, you know, um, we love people when they come up with, you know, interesting, uh, you know, interesting ideas. And uh, you know, we have limitations on our bandwidth, but we're, you know, we've, we've developed, I think to our delight, a really important group of listeners in the US. I think that our listener numbers, certainly they're over 25% of our global audience now uh, in the US, which is, yeah, which is great because uh, there's so many, there's always such interesting and fantastic stuff that comes out of the US, such great thinking, great firms, you know, I mean, Europe has still, and that includes the UK, Europe has much to learn about US dynamism, entrepreneurial spirit, lack of stigma and failure, the belief in the possible, um, and that's why you know I felt I worked for American firms for you know most of my life. I felt very very lucky. Awesome, and guys, those links are in the description below. So make sure you stop what you're doing. It is moneymazepodcast.com. I'll put that link in the description. There's a ton of amazing content. I will tell you that um, he, you know, Simon as a host, he asks a lot of great questions for those guests, and you're able to unpack and unleash a lot of different strategies, the way they think, the way they they process things, the way they look at things in regards to different you know market approaches and you know different uh, investment uh, industries. So 
uh, I would highly recommend taking a look at that. Um, and Simon, I really appreciate being on here again, you know, just humbled by your, your spirit, but also the way you are able to ask these questions, get an incredible immense value from each one of your guests, but also just the value that you brought today, talking about your thesis, talking about the way you think about it, your, your mental models, if you will, uh, and your obviously your biases that you're aware of to be able to ensure that, of course, hey, you know what, cut the loss when necessary and, and be very surgical in, in your approach in, 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 in industry, um, but also, you know, run with the market and, and acknowledge it, you know, and gather all the data and, and interpret that data accordingly. Um, and I always love to ask my guests before I let you go fully, is there any last words of wisdom, Simon, that you'd like to share with our audience? There's no substitute for combining enthusiasm with hard work. Well said. Well said. Gosh, that is that is amazing, amazing words of wisdom. Guys, that is my friend, the podcast host, CEO and CIO, my friend <laughs> of Money Maze Podcast, the one and only Simon Brewer. Guys, that is Jerry with Christian Diaz Podcast. Until next time, be uncommon if you can.